You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos, and you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. This week, Father Paul presents a brief introduction to his discussion of Genesis chapter 28, noting the false assumption of a perceived hero in Scripture. I am delighted to introduce Father Paul on the Bible as Literature podcast, Tarazi Tuesdays. In comparison with chapter 25, dealing, actually detailing the marriage of Isaac to Rebecca from Haran, without Isaac's having had to even leave his home, the following lengthy chapters, beginning with 28, will detail how the blessing that was allegedly secured through human cunning, we remember the story how Rebecca helped her son Jacob so that the blessing that was Esau's would be stolen. So these chapters take their time to show how the blessing that was taken through human cunning will be turned by God into a curse of exile and servitude for no less than 14 years over two sets of sabbatical years, imposed by no less than Laban, who is Rebekah's brother, who had acted so graciously toward Abraham's servant in chapter 25. So just to the hearing, the Opposition is really very clear that with Isaac things went so smoothly as we spoke. He didn't have even to leave, not even Abraham. It's the servant of Abraham that did the deal. And now suddenly starting with 28, we have a lengthy story about Jacob leaving the country and being in a state of servitude. Remember that in Hebrew, the verb abad means to serve in the sense of being the slave of. And later, one will notice immediately that this story presages the servitude of Jacob slash his children in Egypt for no less than 430 years. So it's a very powerful double feature. So Jacob is not, is very much like Abraham, Abraham, you know. I mean, if if you are a Jew or even a Christian and wants to praise the great deeds of your forefathers, 
Abraham and Jacob, you will be making fun of yourself. I mean, if these are your grandparents, then it's not good news at all. So it's a very powerful literary twist. And what makes it even more of a sting is that here Jacob, before being subjugated by Egypt, which is a foreign power, is here subjugated by his own kin in Haran, which is the earth of his forefathers, on both his paternal and maternal sides. So it's really a slap in the face of Jacob, and in this instance also his mother Rebecca, who helped him to steal the blessing, meaning that ultimately in Scripture, you think that now and then you can force God's hand, but it never works. And then the conclusion is that the culprit is neither Haran nor Egypt, but it is the propensity of Jacob toward imagining that he can control his destiny through his own or his mother's guile and cunning. During the time of Joseph's living in Egypt, Pharaoh was beneficent toward him and his folk. The oppression by Egypt did not start until the reign of a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, as we hear in Exodus 1.8. So, it's a complete opposite, if you like. Again, Pharaoh was good toward Joseph, and through him his brothers and his father. But here, from the beginning, Laban, who was good unto Isaac via the servant of Abraham, from the beginning, his planning with guile and cunning. It's like a counterpunch to what Rebecca and Jacob did earlier. The sin or deadly mistake of theology is the false assumption that the perceived hero of the story, Israel in the Old Testament and the Church in the New Testament, is by definition the good guy. I mean, we know that, we don't need even to debate it. Who is always to be perceived positively in spite of his propensity to disobedience. See, for example, the self-righteous terminology of forgiven sinner among Protestants. And worse, wounded healer among contemporary North American Orthodox to speak of themselves. I'm sure you heard that. So on the one hand, we have the forgiven sinner. And here we have the wounded healer. 
it reminds me of another set, which is the servant leader. And we always defend that, even when we criticize the bad actions of the hero. During my stay in North Carolina, I went to attend a Presbyterian church just to get in touch with the people there. And I introduced myself and I stayed there. The following Sunday, I went to attend. And the preacher, very classic of North America, how we use modern terminology of technically postmodern terminology to show ultimately that we are forgiven sinners. I mean, you know my criticism of the Orthodox on the prodigal son Sunday. So the whole story is about me, the prodigal son. But anyway, to go back to that preacher, he threw in, which really almost made me puke, but I stayed, I couldn't leave the church, that, well, we see here that the family of Abraham and Jacob are individuals that are dysfunctional. It's a dysfunctional family. They are not really bad. They are just dysfunctional. And according to me, this will never end. I mean, people don't realize even how it is oxymoronic how they handle things. The Orthodox should not blame the others because they have it. Besides the prodigal son, they have it also during the famous week of the Pharisee and the publican, when they took the decision not to fast during that week on Wednesday and Friday, to show the world that they are not Pharisees. I mean, <laughs> it's a big joke. It has nothing to do with dysfunctionality. It has to do with guile. You're intending to show yourself what you are really not. And we have this under the judgment of the teaching of Matthew. If you fast, I mean, do not show off. If you pray, do not show off. If you give alms, do not show off. And then everybody says, well, really, I don't want to show off. This reminds you of your beloved professor of Old Testament. He doesn't like to show off. But you do that. So we are always ultimately the good guys, whatever our actions. And here comes the ultimate judgment of Matthew 25. So let's hear this. I mean, these are extra comments I put at the beginning of the story. Again, to underscore my criticism of classical theology, and we are all the children of classical theology, that there is an assumption in our mind, and then we write a few papers by choosing a few sentences to back it up. 
and thus we're not listening to the texts. We are trying to control it and thus ultimately to control God. To use Platonic terminology, which pervades again our theology, we, the believers, as we call ourselves, like Jacob, Judah, and Israel, are essentially the good guys, whereas they that are not part of us are the bad guys unless they deal nicely with us. Take, for instance, the abhorrence of contemporary Judaism in speaking of a righteous Gentile, that is, a non-Jew who deals beneficently with the Jews. I mean, this is classic in their terminology. And they praise them. He is a righteous Gentile, which is against the teaching of Paul. Because you, as a human being, do not decide who is righteous and who is not, whether it's Jew or Gentile. But in this terminology, the Jews behave as though they control the matter of righteousness and they grant it to whomever they so choose. In other words, according to their approach, for a Gentile to be righteous is defined by his doing God's will. But it is not defined by doing God's will, but whether he is pro-Jew. Now, Christians do not fare better. I think ultimately the Jews learned a lot from the Christians, historically speaking. Christians do not fare better since their assessment of non-Christians follows the same path. They are divided into pro and anti-Christians. In either case, the Jews or the Christians view themselves by definition as the people of God, regardless of their behavior. Ethnocentrism is the other side of the coin of anthropocentrism. I mean, the ethnos is usually a large ego. Instead of the I, we have a collective I, the famous we. Such attitude goes against the prophetic teaching, whereby the peoplehood of God and even the Godhead of God will be evident at the end of the age on the basis of the factual obedience to, that is, implementation of God's will and not on the basis of a mental intellectual adhering to his teachings. And I refer to that text to which I refer so very often that it is on that day when after I punished them, 
to teach them a lesson and they return and they repent by doing my will and that's very powerful in both Ezekiel and Jeremiah but specifically Ezekiel then they shall be my people and I shall be their God at the end of Ezekiel 37 and that is something I wish I could hear rarely from Jews and Christians but according to my data I'm the only one who talks like that show me any Christian or Jew actually they have meetings after meetings after meetings debating as to who is the people of God The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.